episode 302, the gigantic problem I have with talk about telehealth. Today, I speak with Blake McKinney, MD, from Cirrus, MD. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. Sometimes, when I overhear a conversation slash argument about telehealth, it occurs to me that there's a lot of fighting words about some things and very, very little about other things, which I'd regard as equally or maybe even more important. Some of the sparring tends to jump immediately to tactics and UX, absent of strategy and CX. In my experience, you can't talk about a user interface until you talk about the overall customer experience and journey and like what your goal is. So here's what I mean. Let's take urgent care as an analog. Say a patient goes to urgent care with symptoms consistent of allergic asthma. The NP gives the patient strict instructions to take an antihistamine and Flonies and Flovent. She tells the patient to be sure to make a follow-up with their PCP to evaluate how it's going. If the patient doesn't make a follow-up visit, do we suggest it's because the live in-person visit should have been telehealth? Or if the patient is not adherent and winds up in the hospital with a full-blown asthma attack, do we suggest that live in-person visits diminish adherence? Let me respectfully suggest that it'd be a solid no on that. This is exactly why, whenever I listen to a diatribe about how telehealth did not work out for a patient, I find it interesting to ask a couple of questions. The question that I tend to ask when someone starts talking about some telehealth fail is, how did it fail? Like, how did it not work out? And the answer to this question tends to be, similar to the above allergic asthma example, that the patient needed lab work or imaging or a follow-up visit, and that couldn't be done via telehealth. There was no resolution to the patient concern, in other words. Okay, so first of all, most practices don't have immediate on-premises lab work or imaging, so the patient would have had to have gone somewhere else to get it anyway. But even if they did, as far as I know, you can't have a follow-up visit at the same time that you have the first visit. Not to be cheeky, but that's why they call it a follow-up visit. (laughs) So then the next logical question is, if the patient doesn't show up for a follow-up, If the patient were in person, what's the greater likelihood that they would have gone for the lab test and or come back for the follow-up? So this is when you start to realize that the setting of care, i.e. virtual or in person, may be a little bit less important than the agency of the provider involved. And it may be a little less important than the structure of the organization sitting around that patient encounter. Said another way, strategically, what are we doing here? What are we trying to accomplish? What's our roadmap to get the patient from where they are now to wherever that goal is? A patient visit is a tactic. It's one point in time. And that's true regardless of whether it's a remote visit or an in-person one, synchronous or asynchronous. A patient visit or interaction is not a care pathway. It is rarely, if ever, a magic bullet, one and done. But that doesn't stop us from thinking about patient encounters one encounter at a time which may be exactly why we wound up with a fragmented healthcare system that doesn't work very well. But I digress. 
So from what I can see, some of the flaws that some people attribute to telehealth might be more properly construed as flaws to the ecosystem in which the telehealth is being deployed. For example, you know, how much agency or data or infrastructure does the provider behind the camera have to see where the patient is in their treatment journey and make sure that they get to that next milestone? Because in cases where the doctor behind the camera or the telephone or the text message has agency and the telehealth visit is part of a defined patient journey, telehealth results are strikingly comparable to not telehealth results, if not better. If we're contemplating a patient journey or treatment journey writ large, the site of care at any moment in time is a secondary or tertiary factor, certainly not a primary one. So here's what I want to know about telehealth. How do you best use it not as a point solution, but as part of a larger whole? How do you optimize a telehealth encounter so it pulls its weight in helping patients get a resolution to their chief complaint or manage their chronic conditions? Christian Millister has written about this in his Telehealth Tuesdays newsletter, which is great, by the way. Christian wrote that the delivery of care when viewed through the eyes of a systems engineer, which he is, becomes a quite simple four-step process. These are the four steps that Christian says. He says the first step is assessment, which leads to a diagnosis, which is step two. Step three is the development of a treatment plan. And then step four is the implementation of that treatment plan. Amongst other sidebars, I talk about these four steps today with Blake McKinney, MD. Dr. McKinney is an ER doc, as well as the co-founder and CMO over at Cirrus MD. In our conversation today, Dr. McKinney actually comes up with one more step to add to the four-step process. It's kind of a pre-step where the patient decides that he or she needs care to begin with. My name is Stacey Richter. This podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Blake McKinney, MD. Welcome to Relentless Health Value. Thanks, Stacey. Thanks for having me. Christian Millister has this newsletter called Telehealth Tuesday, and I really like it. One of the things that he has said is that in the delivery of care, there's a four-step process that's involved. First, you have an assessment that leads to a diagnosis, which is step number two. Then number three is you've got to have a developed treatment plan. And then number four is going to be the implementation of that treatment plan. The one step that you have added is kind of this pre-step where the patient decides to make an appointment in the first place. Does that change at all if the patient has the opportunity to have a virtual visit versus an in-clinic visit? Does them Googling, you know, visiting Dr. Google... (laughs) Is that impacted at all by what is to follow? So when people become sick and injured, their thought processes change. And regardless of the availability of convenient options, there is one force more powerful than convenience, and that is familiarity. That's the barrier that many people have had to get over in order to try telemedicine. When you walk into your neighborhood urgent care or when you call for a visit with your doctor, even if it's two weeks away, you're at least familiar with what's going to happen. I at least know what I'm going to get. Historically, what I'll call legacy telemedicine, which is essentially an urgent care visit online or through the telephone, has a historically relatively low resolution rate. And for that reason, many people are likely to reach for the familiar instead of what might appear to be a more convenient option. Let me interject there because I thought telemedicine has a comparable resolution rate to an in-clinic. Are we doing something brand new now that we weren't doing in the past, which has enabled this pivot? So in the past, telemedicine has existed largely as a fragmented solution. 
large national telemedicine companies offering a brief phone call, sometimes a video with an unconnected doctor, uh, that has a low resolution rate. Like a Teladoc or an Amwell, you're not necessarily a fan of those platforms, not because of the venue, you know, whether they're virtual or not, but merely because it's a disconnected entity. And maybe we could see a similar lack of resolution if we go to, there's all kinds of on-site like MedExpress and those types of urgent cares also completely disconnected, generally speaking, from the patient's normal PCP if they have one. So would we expect to see a similar lack of resolution in those places? That's exactly right, Stacy. The visit that ends in you need to go see your primary doctor to get this resolved, that's always going to add steps. It might help in the moment. Those models are better than having no access to a doctor at all. And I think companies you mentioned, Teladoc and Amwell, I think they've done a good thing in that they have achieved the lowering of a barrier for a patient simply to connect with a doctor. What I suggest is that there's more we can do. Telemedicine that's a part of an integrated system, telemedicine that is continuity-based, is going to be better medicine fundamentally. The question isn't virtual care versus in-clinic care. The more relevant question might be, is it continuous, contiguous, integrated care versus something in a silo outside of this? That's exactly right. Let's talk about then one of the things that often comes up when we compare in clinic versus telehealth, the idea that it's really difficult to assess a patient, which is the first step. So if we're speaking about assessment, is it possible to assess a patient virtually with the same accuracy as if they were sitting in front of you? Dr. William Osler, who is generally regarded as the founder of modern medicine, what Dr. Osler taught his interns and residents in the late 19th century at Johns Hopkins was to listen to your patient they're telling you the diagnosis. And when we listen to our patients, you know, med students are taught today that you arrive 85% of the way to your assessment and your plan just from the information that they give you in conversation. And this is prior to undressing the patient. This is prior to your physical exam. In fact, the, the patient's complaint is going to inform your physical exam. It's going to inform the diagnostic tests that you order next. We're able to accomplish that through modern communication in similar, and I would argue sometimes better ways than you can even sitting in the same room with a person. One of the pushbacks that you always will hear, sometimes the patient doesn't realize actually that there's something wrong with them. So doctors kind of watching the patient walk down the hall to the exam room, for example, and seeing that they're listing or their eyes are unfocused or, you know, there's any number of just sort of observational things that, or they smell funny, you know, that may not be able to be discerned on video. And I kind of ask this a little bit of the 80-20 rule. You know what I'm saying? Like, I don't know how many doctors actually watch their patients walk to the exam room. So I don't necessarily want to compare the ideal world on one side to what's realistic on the other side. But if we're comparing apples to apples, how do you see, how would you respond to a clinician who came up with that pushback? Again, there are many defenders of the status quo in healthcare. There are, I would argue, more champions of change and advocates that we can lower barriers to care. If we were to sequester physicians behind the walls of their exam rooms and their clinics and not allow patients access to us because of an older dogma, 
that I must be in the same room in order to know absolutely everything about my patient, then you know things will stay the way that they are largely. The vast vast majority of healthcare consumers are able to tell a doctor what's wrong. They're able to say, I'm having to use the wall to walk down the hall. They're able to describe a lump or a bump. They're able to discern their symptoms. And although not medically trained, they are able to bring up a complaint. For this reason, lowering the barrier for the person to voice that complaint and bring it to the attention of a clinician is always going to lead to better outcomes than simply causing everybody to be subject to the physician shortage and to the time and geography barriers associated with going to a physical clinic to be seen by a doctor. So ultimately, if there's minor incremental differences, that's not going to make up the difference between the number of patients who won't get seen at all because they do not have a virtual option. That's right. Or consider the person and I hear this all the time, who says, I can't see my primary doctor for six months. My response with respect to my colleagues is that if you can't see your primary doctor for six months, you don't have a primary doctor. Okay, so let's move on to the second step here, which is diagnosis. So we've assessed the patient and now you're getting to the second step where we're figuring out what do we think is wrong here? How does that compare? Is it in a virtual environment? Is it just as easy or harder? Or like, how does it compare to an in-clinic visit relative to you trying to figure out what's wrong? It's very similar. I think the fundamentals of medicine are the same and the standard of care is the same, whether the care is in person or in clinic. That diagnosis or that objective determination of what's happening is when the physician gathers enough information to have narrowed down the possibilities and is ready to make that step to what's next. And it's really the same. My brain works the same, whether I'm talking to a patient on the telephone, sitting with them in person, or chatting with them asynchronously at their convenience. And oftentimes, if there's a part of that that required a lab test or some kind of imaging or something like that, if you start thinking about it, which I have, generally speaking, that's probably not going to transpire in the same office visit as an in-clinic assessment conversation anyway. So it wouldn't necessarily mean an extra trip anywhere for the patient. Likely, even if they went in person to the first visit where they were being assessed, they'd probably have to go somewhere else anyway if tests or follow-up was necessary. I'll mention one of my favorite integrated networks is Kaiser Permanente. And what we're seeing with their integrated delivery system is physicians making these assessments and plans remotely by email, via chat, via video visit in some cases or telephone. They're listening to the patient, they're understanding what they need, and then they are sending them in to these diagnostic super centers, which the patient arrives and there's already a plan. There are orders placed. I am here for a left ankle x-ray. I'm here to have my blood drawn and the specific labs are ordered by the physician remotely. And when those are resulted, the physician or the team of physicians is involved. From a continuity basis, you can then, with the benefit of that diagnostic, make the next step. Is it a prescription? Is it a referral? Is it, well, that left ankle, it looks like it's just sprained and here's the advice we're going to provide. It definitely sounds like what the rate critical to excellent care and resolution is, is not necessarily the venue of the visit, but it's more how integrated is the whole journey here. That seems to be far greater determinant of patient success than necessarily how did this visit transpire. 
Right. And Stacy, if you want to tread out into the deep water, it's actually about the underlying economic model resulting in the experience the patient's able to have. We'll circle back to that. Let's follow through with our four steps here. And the third one is the development of the treatment plan. So based on what you've just said, I mean, you're sitting there, the doctor is contemplating this either alone or in a team-based setting, but the patient doesn't need to be sitting in front of you for you to have that thoughtful contemplation, it sounds like. When it comes to the what's next, doctors love resources. If I have the ability to reassure my patient and to invite them to return to chat with myself or one of my partners in six hours. That's us deciding what trajectory we're talking about a seven-year-old with abdominal pain. Are we going to send that family into the emergency room tonight or are we going to watch them and keep in touch? If I have the ability to send a nurse in a car out to the house, such as capability offered by dispatch health, if I have the capability to order an x-ray or an ultrasound at a local testing center and I'm able to manage the result of that and get that information, then those are resources I have uh, to take better care of the patient. Uh, Many times in telemedicine, this isn't the case. And certainly there are telemedicine services that are adding a lot of value and have a high resolution rate, but aren't yet integrated with the local delivery network. And therefore, they're having to tell patients what they need and send them out to seek that care on their own. You know, obviously shared decision-making is a really big deal here. So it sounds like what you're suggesting is that doctor contemplates options, comes up with a couple of different choices for the patient to choose. A conversation ensues and then patients often running from there. If the care is integrated, then kind of the structure and the system can help them ensure that that follow-up is as easy as possible for the physician to navigate. If it's not integrated, then sending the patient off on their own and success rates aren't as high. But basically at the end of the day, the treatment plan can be offered up. The venue of care is not the biggest factor. That's right. Uh, Simply having a physician who you can communicate with is going to increase your ability to at least check back in with somebody if you're not getting to the right point of care when you need to. And then the last step we've got is, you know, now let's implement the plan. And obviously, this is where a lot of good intentions fall flat because maybe the patient didn't understand what the plan was. Maybe they weren't adherent to the drugs because they can't afford them. I mean, there's all kinds of variables here, but I'm not necessarily sure whether there's any necessarily, you know, if what you said at the top of this conversation relative to resolution rates, they're pretty comparable, virtual versus in clinic, then I'm not sure what impact or what bearing the venue of care would have on whether the patient was able to follow up on their, do the things that a patient would need to do in order to create better health for themselves. So implementation to me is first and foremost about follow-up. There are certain cases that are amenable to follow up in continuity in the virtual setting. And I'll use mental health as perhaps the most salient and applicable of these services. Just our observation from what our patients bring to us. And we have a very large population of completely uninsured people. And these come to us through one of our larger clients, a big retail store with hundreds of thousands of employees. We let the patient define what our service does. And when we discovered, when we went live with this client, what the overwhelming majority of our patients were coming to us with were mental health-related issues. As a result, we developed a mental health-specific specialty primary care service to offer that follow-up because the anxiety, depression, insomnia, many of the mental health issues that people are experiencing 
are very amenable to continuity in a communications-based medical practice. So in seeing a plan through, when you can start a patient on a medication based on an appropriate assessment and measurables around mental health, which we have questionnaires that act as essentially vital signs for mental health. When we decide it's appropriate to begin them on a medication, we invite them to return to talk to us anytime. But more than that, we enroll them and we proactively reach out to them. And we we use very simple tools to do this. We ask the patient, hey, are you messaging me through your phone? Are you on a computer? Oh, if you're not on your phone, hey, if you go ahead and download the SiriusMD app onto your phone, enable push notifications, that makes our job of reaching back out to you, something that's more complete, more inclusive. And our participation rates and our follow-up rates have been off the charts with improved scores uh, for depression and anxiety because of the continuity they were able to offer. So relative to the fourth step, which is implementation of the plan follow-up care, etc., you know, the patient doing the things and knowing what they need to do and being on board and buying into the recommendations. What I'm thinking here is that the virtual environment could be very well equipped to so that the patient can have access to, you know, being reminded of what their care pathway or their their treatment is and being able to check in with that patient after they leave. That's right. You if you give them a good experience, they're more likely to put your app on their phone and they may put it on the front screen. And if you re-engage with people, then you're going to have a higher chance of earning that right to be involved in their care and uh, and to remain a part of their journey, meeting them where they are. If we're talking about the virtual environment, then there's other opportunities there to engage subsequent to the patient, you know, leaving the part of their journey that involves talking to a physician or actually speaking with a healthcare professional that, you know, obviously now we're introducing the opportunity to have apps and, and other ways to engage the, the patient. And since they already probably put a telehealth app on their phone or something, this becomes eminently more possible. Well, and we learn a lot about our patients this way. Somebody may come in for a sore throat. We ask them to tell us a little bit about yourself medically. What medicines do you take? And they let us know that they take Zoloft. And what happens is in that conversation, they let us know that they are in between primary doctors or they lost their insurance and will bring up, well, how, you know, how do you plan to stay on your Zoloft? And, and a different conversation ensues. So now we're attending to the sore throat and we're addressing and offering a continuity-based mental health primary care service, all because we're asking questions and we're listening to our patients. So it sounds like this is a marriage of a human interaction when a human interaction is necessary and then allowing digital to do its thing so that, you know, nothing for nothing. But many people have said that one of the big issues with human contact is that it's not super scalable and it's also not available at three o'clock in the morning, generally speaking, unless you go to the emergency room. So is this how AI and chatbots kind of fit into the care journey in your estimation? I believe that the role of machine learning, natural language process, or I'll I'll refer to, to it all categorically as automations. There's a place for automations. My prime directive at SiriusMD is to build trust. Because if, if we build trust, we lower barriers and we improve outcomes. So the use of AI and anything resembling a chat bot is in our philosophy meant to make the clinician more efficient It's meant to offer the patient a chance to, you know, volunteer 
information when appropriate off to the side. But it isn't for the machine to either masquerade as the doctor, and it certainly is not to do a great deal of information collecting ahead of the patient simply being allowed to chat with the doctor. As we've grown, we have included 24-7 physician coverage because we learned that that's when many patients want to chat with us, when they're getting off their their shift uh, on the loading dock at 2 a.m. We're there for them. There's a place for technology, but it definitely is to enhance the human experience as opposed to replace it at, at a certain level. And it, it needs to be a very considered, thoughtful assessment how that technology fits into the care journey, not necessarily you know, asking technology to do something that is either prior to trust being established or that is really tough. What we've observed, and we've, we've run through several trials with this, is that, first of all, a chatbot up front does not typically engender trust or a joyful experience. Second of all, if I, as the doctor, meet the patient, and right after the word hello, if the first thing I have to do is read two pages of you know the conversation that the patient had with the chatbot, that's not making me more efficient. Um, it's going to cause me to ask a litany of clarifying questions. Our belief is to remove as many steps, remove as many barriers from in between uh, the patient or the member and the expert that can help them uh, with their problem to begin with a response that's very clearly human, it's very clearly empathetic. And with that, the, the best adaptive interview that you can create is human to human, whereas the best adaptive interview that a machine is currently capable of producing is not quite as good as a half-asleep human, if you've ever tried any of these tools. So what are you doing with the tech then? As far as technology goes, the ability to interpret data is something that we're very interested in we're sitting on what might be the world's largest repository of natural human language in a clinical setting. So an AI data set that's based on you know academic publications or the content of electronic health records is a data set that's not fundamentally based on the concerns patient bring, the patients bring to doctors. Furthermore, in traditional medicine, doctors aren't taking the patient's words and capturing their voice into their medical documentation. That's what we're doing. And we're populating a very large data set uh, currently that we hope to learn a great deal from in the future. The, the patient has a telemedicine, you know, telehealth encounter with a provider. And you would like, say they come in with some mental health concern. And I just read a stat the other day that said mental health, telepsychiatry, telemental health has gone up 500% in the past mm -hmm. pandemic months. That's right. And, and that's not to say we don't believe that there's a role for certain automated practices in the future, certain disease-specific modules, that uh, there's a great deal of evidence that if you follow up in that way, it can be helpful. So do you want to just give us a little bit of information about CRSMD? We are a technology and medical services company. We service uh, primarily uh, large health plans, some smaller health plans, and employers in uh, providing access to doctors 24-7 for their membership. We evolved with the same philosophy from day one that it is our mission to allow everybody to have the same type of access that doctors, friends, and family have. And we've, uh, we found that there are those interested in sponsoring that type of access. And typically, it's those who are responsible for paying the bill for the patient's health care. 
Sue, and I know we're running out of time here, but you just said something that strikes me as interesting. You're working with the payer, not the provider. So obviously there's a PCP or somebody that all of these patients have. How are you providing that continuity of care then and not acting like a teledoc in a silo? collecting all of this information and then, you know, when the patient goes to their PCP, it's same story as we just talked about as not necessarily optimal. Right. And it's an, it's an excellent question. You know, we were originally created as a primary care tool. We have come full circle and many of our clients are using their own providers on our software. And in, in many cases, it is the primary care physician or, pri- or primary care team. And I'll add that because no one individual can be your primary care physician 24-7. And so the idea of an always-on continuity-based service does require a team approach. SiriusMD discovered in 2017, we discovered that a vast majority of the uh, American insured population and, uh, and, and almost the entire completely uninsured population don't have a primary doctor or they don't have a primary doctor who they can access. And for that reason, in early 2018, we founded the SiriusMD Provider Network which is a national network of our own generalist physicians and primary care doctors who are available 24-7, who do practice as a team, and we offer continuity insofar as it is appropriate. The person who is in need of care from time to time or is in need of care that is fully manageable remotely, such as many mental health issues, they can find a primary care home within our service that's provided to them through their health plan or employer When we determine that somebody needs locally ordered diagnostics or specialty referral, uh, we are going to refer them and we're going to use our health plan partners to help see to it uh, that a person is able to get to the resources that they need. And and, and yet we want to be available when when patients uh, who are connected find themselves 930 at night with a question about should I go to the emergency room with this or not. But we always want to support and never to compete with somebody's existing uh, care network or team. So it sounds like that's something that you're struggling with as well, that, you know, maybe there's integrated data that the employer or the the health plan, just kind of generally speaking, is providing you with. But it sounds like something that is, it's still on the horizon to be solved for. Like everybody out there trying to provide care, we have to deal with the realities of our patients' particular health insurance or lack thereof. We have to deal with the availability of local resources or the lack thereof. In every case, we we try to bring what resources we have to bear to improve the experience and the outcome for the patient. So where can people go to learn more about CRSMD if they are interested in learning more? Our website, uh, CRSMD.com. Blake McKinney, MD, thank you so much for being on Relentless Health Value today. Thanks for having me, Stacey. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.